0: Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Grove Show. I am delighted to be joined uh, uh, today with Matthew Campbell-Hill. Matthew has an incredible story and mission at the moment. I thought it's one that we just have to share, especially in this time of COVID-19. Matthew, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you, thank you. Really good to spend the time.
0: Oh great, and maybe we can just kick off with your background and give people a bit more color to who you are.
1: Yeah. Um, I've had, um, what to some people looks like quite a mixed background, but I think it, it makes sense. Um, <laughs> essentially I've been down two streams of work, which has been in the, uh, the, the, the marketing and, and comms side of, of the world. And then on the other side was, was technology. And I've, I've often done a, uh, a stint in one and then gone on to another, or I've, I run the two side by side at different points in my life. Um, and that, that started very young, started with being a, a computer games tester at points in my, in my teens um, and then through work experience and um, with uh, a company many will hopefully remember called Scion, uh, made the little hand, uh, handheld organizers and were really, really the, uh, the market leaders in that at the time. Um, and then I had the opportunity to, to work um, in some, some other areas, or uh, did some time with um, Oxford University Press, but these are very, all very young, and I, and I, I had that dual interest in, in technology, my real inner geek, and then interest in, in communication and, and what, what it means to people, and that was in marketing. Uh, and that led me through working with the likes of uh, Daily Telegraph, uh, with the BBC, uh, BBC uh, trained me as a broadcast journalist, um, he says with a huge pause, so obviously not very good. <laughs> uh, and uh, and then with a small magazine group based in the southwest, but with a, with an international readership, which was good fun. And, and in between that, I was uh, still popping in and out of technology for for a year or so here, or a couple of years, and and uh, included heavy industry, oil and gas, um, emergency systems, and uh, and and some other things like that. I think really, what is the what became my my uh, defining point of my career actually was, funny enough, I, I had a uh, a spinal injury in my teens, um, playing rugby, and it, it, although I could run and things like that, I couldn't really do contact sports afterwards, and I was I was, I was in pain. But in two thousand and nine, unfortunately, that old injury fell apart, and. Uh, end up in hospital and lots of things went wrong and I was bedridden for quite a long time and ended up with really essentially me being in a wheelchair and, and what could I do but whilst I was in hospital it was a case of what can I do now How uh, the, the words used to me when I, they were discharging me literally they, they said well, you're kind of done um, the words used to, to myself and my then girlfriend um, were mourn the life you've lost and because my then girlfriend now my wife was a junior doctor in her first year of um, being a qualified doctor, they, they thought it was fine to uh, this particular person. I don't think the system in general is a particular person, thought it we find that, that, that she should uh, look after me for the rest of my life, which obviously didn't sit very well with us. Um, and I quickly remembered you can only play so much Xbox um, uh, before you really just want to tear your eyes out. So I co founded an organization called Mentors Den, CIC, which was Mentors for Disadvantaged Entrepreneurs Network and we helped set up uh, quite a few businesses with uh, disabled and disadvantaged people including working in prisons across the southwest and a bit further up the country and that was great uh, it was it was done pro bono um but it enabled me to keep skilled and, and keep working with people which i wanted to do even though it was a lot of the time from bed um and as i got able to move a bit more um, I saw a role being advertised uh, by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence and they wanted some non-clinicians with some understanding of the areas that I had some understanding in um, to become founding members of a panel called the uh, Medical Technologies Advisory Committee. And that was to look at novel medical devices and review them for their use in the NHS. They had a board of clinicians. And they wanted some ex- external expertise and actually it was one of the one of the things where it, it, just right time right place the technologies they were looking at in the, the initial few months some of them had some uh components of them that had i would worked on in with with scion when when i was uh, doing work experience with them many many years before so it, it, it that was great and, and i was really fortunate to be able to be a founding member with them i with with that panel, so obviously of, of international significance what m says is, is taken up uh, around the world, and um, I reviewed about 300 medical devices with them over nine and a half years, and was seconded across to another part of Nice to look at um, uh, advanced pharmaceuticals. Did about 60 of those, and during that time, I, I really just had a, a very unique um, was growing this unique skill set by using that, which was which was really fortunate and it was something I really enjoyed. Um, started working with a few medical royal colleges, providing similar external advice,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the Royal College of uh, Royal College of uh, um, Pathologists and the Faculty of General Dental Practice within the Royal College of Surgeons. So it was it was it was just I was building something that didn't exist as as a career, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and uh, then it, 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 those turned into board roles actually, which was helpful. Which was helpful, and it was a, it was a nice. Change in my career. I, there was no way I was going to be able to go back to um, the standard executive career. I, I couldn't do the hours physically. I was having to spend about twenty hours a week doing physiotherapy. Now, as you know, I I swapped the the boring physiotherapy for going back to sport and became a, a, a wheelchair athlete for Great Britain. Um, and uh, in 2012, was national champion and then captain GB to a few World Cup medals and um, and so that that was a great a great journey as well and. Uh, it, it, it it fitted in that need for me to be doing something properly. You're going to do it, hit it hard, hit it yeah. fast, and, uh, and literally as a fencer, um, yeah, doing wheelchair fencing, well, I suppose it was the uh, only legal way I could find to travel the world and hit disabled people with swords. Um, <laughs> but of course it meant uh, I hadn't really taken to the idea that there were going to be uh, a few hundred others that were trying to do it to me and probably Probably better for quite a lot of time. Um, so that was great and it, it was a very different idea and I then took on my first board role with the healthcare regulator the medicines and healthcare products regulatory authority, the MHRA. Uh, and my executive director there um, took on a board role with the National Information Board where I helped, uh, I was the independent board lead on the rollout of apps as medical products across the NHS and independent board lead on making sure there's public access Wi-Fi across all of the NHS estate, stake. Um, and then took another role at the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport, non an executive, and it was, I, I really took to uh, the portfolio world, really enjoyed it, obviously I'm much younger than, than most in doing that, um, and that does provide, I think we do recognise we need a different skill set on the board of today than, than we had. Um, thirty, forty years ago, mm-hmm. especially with technology, especially with communications practices, yeah. Um, and and so I still maintain that, and I and I worked. I, I have a few board roles, although not the MHRA one anymore. That was it did my, my time there, and uh, I'm working with, with government across various other things. And in in 2018, we're almost getting there. We're almost getting there. in 2018. Okay. We, uh, I was appointed to uh, uh, the University of Birmingham to the College of Medical and Dental Sciences as the the first ever um senior fellow in novel technology adoption and um uh, from our as, as far as they're aware and we're aware there's there's no one no other university or medical anywhere ha- has done that and and it's great that, you, that birmingham we're doing it birmingham have always been um at the forefront of medical schools there may be some snobbery around that it's not Oxford, cambridge actually they really have they they were the first place that to um to have a, a woman uh, a woman come through as a, as a as a medic come through the, the medical and dental school, the first place to have a, uh, a woman in charge of the medical school. You can see how they always really um, identified and just said, it's not about what anyone else thinks. It's about yeah. what the outcome is going to be. Is this going to change things for the better? So really pleased to have taken that on. Um, it's what we've got, where we've got to is, is recently, I, I, although I've been doing work with Birmingham and, and others and um, helping, I'm writing a, a, a master's in medical technology design and adoption and review for them, which should launch this year. When COVID started, um, it, it, it really took it took bite here in the UK. There was a lot of feeling around and what, what does this mean for us as clinicians out there, and, and my wife's a clinician, obviously I have lots of friends and family and clinicians, and we started to see actually how, how difficult it is for them in there. We've all seen on the news what's happening with PPE, and, and it's, it's a really, really difficult time. Mm. Uh, on Friday the 27th of March, I received a, uh, a DM on my Twitter, at Matt Campbell Hill, um, uh, someone I didn't know. She said, hi, I'm a nurse, my father is an anaesthetist, can he call you this evening? Yeah, sure, he's got a, got a problem, great, no problem essentially what I've been doing for a long time, lots of consulting, lots of different medical products over the years. Great. Um, actually, I didn't hear from him. At 7.10, I got a call, 7.10, 15 I'll have to check my, my phone records. Um, I got a call from a, a, a consultant anaesthetist at the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital in Birmingham called E.J. De Silva. And he said, Matt, uh, you don't know me, can I chat to you? And there's a box that's been made out in, in Taiwan, um, and uh, um, please can look at it. So I was looking at this big Perspex box, um, big heavy thing, could see, I was like, right. He said, it, when we're doing intubation and extubations, that's when an anaesthetist passes a tube down through your throat, through your larynx, and in directly into your lungs. Um, that's a really high risk time, really high risk time for us. Now, we can all understand that because uh, if you put anyone, anything down someone's throat, they're gonna gag, they're gonna cough, they're gonna yeah. vomit. It doesn't matter if, they're, if they are unconscious. Actually, you've got some very basic parts of your brain working, it is a basic action. We also knew, that he also explained, and, and I'd seen at the time that the, the national guidance was, when doing what's called aerosol generating procedures, so anything that causes things to come up
0: yeah.
1: um, or out of the lungs, you must be in the high-level PPE, but also you still must limit the amount of people around you. So even with that, we recognise it's still a significant risk. So he said, this box goes over the top of the patient's head, and I can stick my hands through, and it will provide me some security. And I looked at it, and I said, EJ, um, I can see what it does, or what it says it does, but the reality is, in, uh, if we weren't in a pandemic right now, um, this would never come to market it's, I just found too many flaws in it. So I, I went through them, I said, look, it's got sharp edges. It's clear perspex with sharp edges at eye line. Not a great start. It looks heavy. It looks unwieldy. looks like it can be difficult to move around. Um, I don't know how you're meant to clean it. I don't know how you're meant to store it. And um, there's no guidance on that. This was, uh, so the guy out in Taiwan, I mean, all credit to him, he'd said, this is what I need for me. And so he just made something. He'd done his best. Great. Mm. But my brain was kicking up going, this is this, this isn't ideal it's not good for him and also because it's big and thick and solid and there's cut holes it only protects most of that one person the anesthetist anyone else down the length of the body they're not protected
0: mm. and
1: actually you've still got big open holes where stuff's coming out so I said just give me a couple of hours and I'll get back to you so I went away and having uh, I've always enjoyed getting stuck in and, and designing different routes out um, which is that uh, I'm dyslexic and I should say that because it's known with dyslexics so we we will see different routes through projects and it's why it's very important to have um, a, a mix in, of, of neuroatypical with, with neurotypical people on, on boards and programs. Um, within two hours, I came back to him and I, I designed, I, I said to myself, what I want, what, did I, what was the problem? Sharp corners, heavy, difficult to clean, difficult to store. This, none of this works. What What would work in the normal world? Okay, fine. So I want lightweight. I want disposable. Um, I want easy to erect, easy to store. Um, and important, importantly, if I need to change it, easy to do something whilst I'm using it. So I thought, well, you know, let's let's go with a miniature isolation tent. Let's make a miniature pop-up isolation tent. And what I've made, I think you've seen it, Aerosol Shield, so go to www.aerosolshield.com um, and we, we designed a little tent, external frame, comes flat packed, takes less than 20 seconds to put up, and um, it means you can put it over the patient. Now in intubation, extubation, that's the one, there's one really difficult part when patients are coming in. But actually, uh, and we've done lots of tests now that, and we, we launched the company in a very short time, we'll talk about that I'm sure in a second, but um, my, my point of this was, was I just want to protect the staff. Um, It's not about the money. It's not about whatever we could do. It's actually how do we get products out to protect staff? Now, what this product does is if we start with a patient journey, you imagine this shield. So it's a miniature isolation tent, which covers the top half, the top sixth of the person, but with self-sealing access holes all around it. So you can pass things through and you can put your hands in, you can get stuck in. a patient journey is how a, how a person goes through a healthcare system. And we'll often talk about patient journeys in health tech, and we'll say they can arrive at any point in this journey, or they must start here and they must end here.
0: Mm.
1: And we all know the end point; It's where, they, where discharge happens, whether it's they discharge themselves or they're discharged, or unfortunately, if they pass away. But actually, it can start at any point. So it could start out on the road at home, or it could start... Um, five months into a load of appointments um, or about something else. But I, I give the example of, let's say a patient goes to a GP surgery because they're feeling pretty poorly at the moment. Before they see the GP um, or the nurse, they, they collapse. Now that is a, an immediate, that's a crash scenario. They're in, the, they're in the surgery. You'd normally have two or three staff, maybe a bit more, a few more would, would then come and assess and, and help that patient start CPR. Mm. In a GP surgery, in fact, across most of care, even when things are good, even when we're not in a pandemic, the PPE available to them is really basic. It's a paper mask, not the N95 recommended masks, not a filter mask. It's um, a normal pair of gloves that, that you, when you go to see your GP. And it's a white plastic apron, sort of thing that you'll get um, at a primary school to tear off white plastic apron you know it's cheap it's easy it's throwaway, it's great
0: mm.
1: so the patient collapses they bring out their little crash trolley this 20 seconds put up or they've already put it up so my wife's practice now that theirs is already ready to go and it just go straight over the patient's head okay and tucks in seals, great so now you've iced that that problem because you don't know that patient at that point you don't know anything about them so or you have to assume you have to assume, at least, that that they've got Covid. So it's it's called Covid Unknown. Then the three staff can interact and you have significantly reduced aerosol spread. Doing CPR, everything you want to do, you've significantly reduced it. So there's three people. Then when the ambulance arrives, the shield stays in place on the patient. They put them onto the bed, the trolley, they take them out into the ambulance. So I'm now protecting, that one shield is now protecting five members of NHS staff. And, I've significantly improved the protection of inside the ambulance because of the person's coughing, spluttering, whatever's happening. Great. Ambulance gets to A&E. Within uh, half an hour to an hour, it's very easy to see how any one patient coming in in an emergency situation would come within six feet of um, at least 20 staff, not just clinicians, remember, but all NHS staff, and they're all required from porters, healthcare assistants, consultants. We need them all. So suddenly that one device has now provided significant extra protection to 25 staff. That patient is then going to go through a journey through that through the hospital. They could be going to an operating theatre. They could be going to other wards. They could be going to x-ray, all of this stuff. Again, this is a, it's, it can go through x-ray. It can go through CT. It can go through MRI because it was designed with that in mind. Um, and uh, from, for me to say, is it possible they come into, they come into you know, a six-foot um, contact or closer with um, 100 NHS staff in a large hospital, yeah, in, in 24 hours, very easy. So suddenly this, this one product significantly reduces spread to all of those people. And the important thing about that is, is, when, it, is when we're talking about PPE and when we're talking about the, 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 how um, destructive this virus is and how contagious it is, out in the real world, the contagion is based around on, yes, yeah, so if one person can infect five, it's that's fine. But that person isn't in a crisis at that point and coughing big things up, and, and it's those big globs. That's the high viral load. So actually, that, that's the, it is getting to the point where it's really difficult. Um, what we did uh, as well on top of that is, that because I, we knew, I, the, the team I set up, uh, within 12 hours of having seen, having got this first image, and I'll, I should go back to that really is, is how we did it. We, I went back to it at about 9.30, showed him the image, showed my wife already, is that what you want? This is what it'll do. Yes, that's great. By 11.30 that night, so we're you know, a few hours in from when, he, when I first told about the issue, I had a friend who's a fine jewelry maker um, down in Cornwall um, called Richard Baker Stevens, it has a lovely little, little shop called uh, Canary Blue, in Truro, but he can make things. So it was about 11 p.m. or something, he said, Richard, can you make me this, please? Can you make it, um, whatever we've got, we try and work it out, and he, he took some clear matting from that his ba- baby uses to sit on and eat on, and, and he manufactured a basic proof of concept. Um, so it was 11.30 or midnight, sent it back to me, and showed me the photos, great, showed that to the clinician, yes, this is looking really good, this works. Next morning, about 9 a.m., I'd set up a, a team of experts in medtech. Um, so regulatory expert colleague, um, uh, Richard Williams, and also at Birmingham University. And then um, David Juggins, who is a, a, uh, who's the CCO of a company called Hugo um, Technology, which is one of the major medical tech servicing companies in the UK. Um, and he brought in uh, someone else he knew very well called Mark Reeves. And then I had my clinicians as well, and we all agreed, this is not about money, this is about saving our friends and family. This makes sense. This is a barrier, okay? This is a miniature isolation tent, and so we know this works. We need to scale up on manufacturing as soon as possible. But we need to get this tested more, great. So by 11.30, the clinician, the first clinician, EJ, had called me, I'd never met him, but I'd shown him, obviously he knew what to do. He had gone out and he'd uh, taken apart some bits of a friend's pram including the big rain cover and which had cover. So he then, um, with the promise of replacing, I'm sure. Um, so he then had tried the proof, second proof of concept and it worked for him. Brilliant. By about 3.30, having hit LinkedIn hard, and I think you saw it at the time, he's saying, I need help with this, 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 and this. We had found um, a brilliant company called Airquie. Um, now, if you go onto Airquis site, the first thing you go, well, they make bouncy castles. I'm not sure that's going to help. Well, actually, yeah, they do. But go down to their, um, go along their tabs, and you suddenly find that they're the Europe's largest manufacturer and supplier of medical isolation tents.
0: Mm-hmm. They always
1: supply the NHS. They always supply the MAD. They know what they're doing um, and well-renowned for it. They don't just supply in Europe. They supply all over the world. They were working with Ebola. They're still working in the NHS with other things. So you just say, great. And I spoke with a guy there called Mark John, and he was just brilliant. So yeah, this, this sounds like a no-brainer. How do we do it? And I think what was great is that uh, there was no talk of money. Uh, no talk of money. There's, you know, it's meant to be like, okay, what do we need to do? You show me the designs. we'll get this, we'll this mocked up. Um, this needs to get out there. We need to help people. So we had um, one, of, one of their team, uh, who was great there, the designer. So, so, so they're a small UK-based company down, down in, in Wales. Um, and they, we had the, um, the prototype made by the end of Tuesday.
0: Hmm, amazing. So we're
1: four days in, four days in, yeah. Wednesday, it was being tested on multiple clinical staffs so and not on patient, multiple clinical staff throughout, um, uh, throughout Wednesday and, um, and Thursday in the Royal Orthopedic Hospital and then by EJ. Because that's the most difficult part, it was that intubation bit we recognize is the most difficult part. Yeah. Um, Lots of really good feedback. Uh, we launched by the end of Thursday soft launch, um, so it was six days and by uh, before we 'd hit the full seven days, I think it was I think it was six minutes to six on the Friday, so an hour and whatever before hour and sixteen minutes hour and fourteen minutes before the seven days we'd taken our first bulk order from abroad um, uh, so six days for issue to medical product to market including uh pretty much full due diligence and this is this is a team of people that are used to working in medtech um was pretty astounding we went global truly global by day 13 because the following thursday i was, i received calls uh order inquiries from the, uh one of the states in the us and over the following few days we added in um vietnam singapore Australia, another state in the US, um, and and more are coming in. We held off with those, actually, because um, there were a few things, but our main cause was this wasn't about making money, this was about saving our friends and family at the NHS. This makes sense to us. It's been difficult for us to get through the system, which has been interesting, um, because this is a team that understand what they're doing. They understand the system really well and they know what makes a project. And what was really important to me is that when we were looking at our team, any one person on our team is a reasonable person to have in court as an expert witness in their area. And that's really important. And a big concern for us is with this wider call for PPE, where people are making... All the stuff at home, and it's it's great that they're doing it and getting stuck in. And other companies are coming in from from outside the medical sphere, and, and in a lot of cases, it's great. You do see some, unfortunately, that are clearly trying to just make a huge profit. You can tell that. Well, everyone on this will watching this will know. They're the ones that are saying buy this amount for this and buy this amount with a thirty or forty percent discount. I can't do a four percent discount. Um, I'm, I'm not against companies being paying for their time. I think that's quite right. But I think you should, check your own, uh, you should check your own morals if you're really trying to make a big markup. Um, but our concern with all of those is, is these are, these are organisations and people who do not understand the requirements in medtech. Med um, and the guidance out there was, was, yes, for help. But for the clinicians going in, if you've got the wrong sort of plastics on their visors, what's that going to mean? Are they get, people going to get cut? Are they going to get blinded? Um, are the masks actually going to... Do what they're meant to do,
0: yeah.
1: um, uh, are the plastics going to have contaminants on them? It, all, all these sort of things, you know, the normal standards that we would expect and, and in peacetime we'd be happy with, um, but we can't do. So we did, we, we did go, we, we did do that. Um, we got the best people in, in, in the world, best manufacturer in the world to make it and distribute it and um, well not so much distribute but to, to make it and build it and do it to the right standards and um, and then we got, um, we, had, we were trying to work out how we get the shipping done. And Legentia, another UK, another UK company, said, great, great, this is a great UK project trying to solve this issue. Let's do this. So Legentia jumped in and, um, and uh, so became partners to, to help us get stuff um, distributed as soon as possible. Um, and that meant that within a few weeks, we had hundreds of products being used across the NHS. But we didn't stop there. Um, we see it's very important to make sure that everyone's happy, everyone's safe. Despite the safety risk being very, 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 very low um, of something going wrong with this, we, every single product is um, individually numbered. It's to be individually identified. It's um, uh, individually quality assessed, as you'd expect of anything going to the medical market mm-hmm. by trained by a trained person in that and then we are getting post-market surveillance. We're doing continuing post-market surveillance. But of course, what that also did for us, as well as giving the opportunity to say, oh, we need to stop now, which we haven't, is it meant we started to get the feedback that we really wanted, which is, wow, this is good. Now, in, in that really difficult area with anaesthetists, and um, where actually it's about it is really about them. As a consultant, I'm in charge of what's happening right now, doing this intubation, extubation. So what I say goes uh, as it should be. We are um, we have a less than 10% negative feedback. All the others have there may be some oh, it would be nice if you could do this, but otherwise it starts with this is great. The less than 10% um, uh, and, and those included complicated cases. But less than ten percent did include some complicated cases. Um, it also included some people who um, perhaps had, had not had time to properly w- study the instructions, which are very, which are very simple. But this is a rush time, right? I mean, I'm not going to judge them. So we took that on board. So we changed our instructions immediately. We, we've got to make this clearer, and we've done some color coding on on the device. Um, and and then there's a a really tiny percentage, um, uh, and we've we've got quite a we've got um, we've had enough people to make it a really a really small percentage. It's in sing, you know the single figures, obviously, have said it's just it doesn't fit my mo. Well, it's fine, it's fine. But my response and in the team, we just looked at this and go having reviewed three hundred medical devices and and all these other projects in that scenario in that area with really high-skilled um, uh, clinicians who are really skilled at doing one particular thing to have such a low amount, say, it doesn't fit my MO. Wow. Exactly. And on top of that, they still completed the procedure they were doing. So they didn't say, you know, and that was what I was really worried about. Are they going to say, no, it got in the way. I had to get rid of it. I had to stop it. No, 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 they didn't say that. But it was, and it was some really basic things that we have then been able to go, great, the next, the next run, we've made those adjustments. We made it clearer, so it's it's been really exciting. There's there's lots of things um, coming out. As as hence my blur at you, as you've just seen. I've I <laughs> talked about it a lot. Um, we've had a lot of great coverage. We were in GQ magazine. Um, my wife was more impressed that our, our dog was in GQ magazine than I was. <laughs> um, my assistant's dog, but we um, it, it is a case of uh, people saying. People in in this sector just saying, this is outstanding. Um, really, it's a really simple project. Why, why hasn't someone thought it before? Well, yeah. I'm a simple guy, it's fine. Um, but what, uh, you know, is this, a, is this a world record for prod, uh, medical product into market, into mass market? Things like that? it's like, maybe, maybe, but there's, there's stuff going on. So we, that, that is that. We, we wanted a way to get it out there as soon as possible to as many people. We've got people asking for it. It's about 40 pounds per unit in cost delivered. Um, So a friend of mine jumped in and said, look, I'm setting you up a GoFundMe. Um, That GoFundMe over the sort of first week and a bit has raised 34,000 pounds. So that's nearly 2,000, nearly 1,000 units, sorry. So uh, that's great. We want to get more, obviously. Um, We've got more people looking at buying. So we're still raising that GoFundMe. Um and it's given us time to start thinking, okay, long term, do you know what? There is a there's a product here. Um staff are are worried. This is a significant barrier for them. We know that we've known that the aerosol-borne contagion is a problem for a long time. Um the WHO has been, has been speaking about it for years, Bill Gates has been speaking about it for years in in the medical world, we've known it's years, but actually, we've had four in the last nine years. Mm. It, this is a diff, This is different, and the step up at each one has kind of been a step up. So we're going to be left with, internationally, um, rightly so, traumatized staff, very panicked staff, very worried staff. Is this a potential um, aerosol contagion? How do I protect myself? So here's a product now that we can roll out long-term, we can help solve that, we can get it out to, I'd uh, really love to be getting it out to refugee camps, where, where I'm very concerned, closed, confined spaces, poor, poor access to medical care, yeah. what's going to happen there? Um, the team's still working uh, for free, we, we are fewer in number now, because everyone obviously was also working full-time, most of the time it's Richard and I, um, and um, obviously the two medics, my wife Lydia, and uh, who is a, Primary care specialist and end of life care specialist for both pediatrics and uh, old age, um, and EJ de Silva as secondary care. And 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 as we got to, we've, and we it's great that we've got interest. We've got people. We've got VCs looking at it. As we know that um, we've got two very uh, advanced versions in the winks which we will do all the extra work on that we want to, there'll be medical devices and they're, they're very very cool, we're very excited about that. Um, we had a, um, we were invited to speak with the West Midlands um, Academic Health Science Network funding panel yesterday and hopefully it went well, we're waiting to see, but they rushed that forward for us. They brought it forward by several weeks just to just to speak to us in possible, they were very keen. I think one of the things we, we were so pleased about. Um, Richard and I and a few of the others is um in order to do that we got a brochure together and it gave us the excuse to park a few other things and just concentrate on what have we done so far and bring it together in that in the three weeks I've shown it to quite a few people because obviously we're a bit tired drunk and um we were so excited when we saw it. We had designers jump in and help us, and, uh, and the friend, Jenna, who's, who's just set up her, her organization called Mixology Comms, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll share a link to you uh, to them as well, because they've been brilliant. She brought in a, a, a friend who's a, an illustrator and designer, and he helped set it up. This brochure just looks like two years to three years work. Is what you expect of a two to three year project of getting a technology into the medical Western medical sphere? It's multiple pages long. It's got um, tens of letters of support from lots of different levels of clinician.
0: Mm.
1: It's got two pre-published papers from a um, uh, uh, a high-standard clinician. It's got um, three more papers about to be put into it. Um, uh, Some comparative studies, and then it's got all the technical requirements and showing that we meet them. It's, it's slightly ridiculous to have done that much work in such a short time, but it is certainly very exciting. Yeah, so I will course. shut up. It's been a very long <laughs> un- time glaring at you. But um, yeah.
0: No, no, no. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. You're sort of the, the Craig David of medical devices getting that business sort of turned around in seven days. It's, it's, it's incredible. If it's aware right of you, I'd love to put a link to your GoFundMe page. I'd love it. Um, Thank you as I think everyone would agree, protecting, protecting anyone, wh- whoever, whoever they may be, whatever they're doing, but especially our frontline is pretty crucial right now. So um, thank you to you and all the hard work on there. And um, uh, there's a few things also I'd be keen, keen to know, and I think this audience would be keen to sort of know about as well. You, your communications background, right? What's, how important is communication right now?
1: So I, um, I go with the old adage, communication is key, or communication is king. I try and avoid the king, but communication is key. And I know we all recognize that, but what does that look like? The stuff I do on boards, if it's uh, anything to do with a new project, most of my work tends to be around um, when I come into in boards. It's because they're starting to look at rollouts of new technologies or, or the reviewing new technology, and we'll get in that early. And I'll come in at any point. Um, either as a board member or as an external. But the earlier I come in, the better, because what it comes down to is what was developed through those 300 devices at NICE. And that is what I call 1.1. And it's a three to five line uh, statement of the problem and the solution mm-hmm. that can be understood by anyone. So to be sort of say, 12, 12 years and up, um, Especially, uh, I tend to say a 12 year old girl, because 12 year old boys, anything like me, we couldn't, I couldn't concentrate for more than five seconds anyway. Um, but 12 year old girls tend to be able to hold a decent conversation about, saying, we'll pry a bit more. The important thing about that is if you clearly state what it is you're doing, and I do not hold, I really don't hold people say, oh, it's too complicated. I don't hold for it. And I'll clarify why in a second. Even as a even if there's a couple of terms in there, people have to look up. That's fine, but you keep you set that right at the beginning. This is our statement of intent. This is our problem and our mission, and this is what we're doing great. And you keep those words the same the whole way. If you think you have to change them, to think really, really hard about that. The reason being is that if a, a rollout, a product rollout, starts with a a CTO saying, actually, we need, we need to redo all the systems, they all of that fall over in the next two years. Okay, fine. Tell me what the, the, why that, that, that solution is, and then I want to know that you're gonna use the same overview to all of your downline, all of your downline, and that I can use it to the rest of the staff in the, the organization. That you're not gonna change it when you go to the um, executive board that it's going to remain exactly the same. Here's our 1.1. And then the non-executive board are going to be able to get it as well. Mm. And then when we talk about it outside to customers, stakeholders, whoever, again, the same three to five lines. Because if you don't do that, if you change it because you're changing it for the market, at some point, all of those people are going to be around the same table. And that will stop you. Because they'll all say, well, that's not what I understood was going on. Mm. It also means that if you can clarify it that simply and quickly, it proves to me you're not trying to hide something in some way. And you may not be doing it nefariously, but there is a, ah, oh, you know, they're not really going to get us. So I'll just repackage it like this. You don't know what they're going to get. You don't know what they're going to get. And if they want to ask more, you've got everything after 1.1. You can go to 99.999 to explain it But get that key message across. And the really important thing about that, for, for doing projects in technology is speed and that's what we did here so i when speaking with ej right at the beginning i clarified his issue in a very short statement and that informed me and he confirmed it he was able to confirm it and that informed me of everything that i needed to know and i kept that as a a blueprint in my mind to to design the the, uh, the aerosol shield it also meant that when i was calling my poor friend Richard um, at such a late time at night, and they've got a little baby, you know, and then already <laughs> was, He totally got what I was saying very quickly as well. And it meant that the next morning, when we set up that team, every, I didn't have to spend four hours convincing, them; they all got it really quickly. And everyone along that line has been able to pick it up from that short statement. This is an aerosol barrier. to a miniature isolation tent to significantly reduce the spread of contaminated aerosol to NHSR. Very, very clear. Yeah.
0: And w- was, that, was that process you just deep diving on understanding what the, what the issue really is and what the product really is? And was the, the majority of time spent on that analysis to get to that point of
1: communication? So uh, I, I think in this situation... Obviously we had that initial conversation, and I have a good understanding of the market, and I have a good understanding of, of some parts of the medical uh, sector. Um, it was more that I found a way very quickly to confirm with the, the person bringing me the problem, what the issue was. So, that, so that's, that's about the comms, that's the comms piece, is you confirm it very quickly, you don't get bogged down in bits that aren't gonna help you at that point to confirm the mission statement. That, that mission statement then in, then informs what you need to know. What signs do I need behind this? That's fine. Um, but does that answer your question? It's really about doing it as quickly as possible and, and, and finding... And, we, and we, 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 could, we can do this in, in any meeting. And that's really important. We've all been called to meetings that should have been emails and seen emails that should have been a text or, or none of the above. And the 1.1 will help you. Because you could start with a 1.1 for everyone. If you say when we're coming to meetings, if we're doing ad hoc meetings, great. Everyone does a 1.1 because then I'll know if I'm going to be actually needed in that. If you want me in that and I don't think that's fine, but I can get an idea from the
0: 1.1 mm. and
1: we really get involved because I, can, I don't have to spend the time that you're talking to me thinking about what is this bigger picture. I don't quite get it. Yeah. So that's where it ties across. And, and to pick up what I said about when people say and I have had pushback. Who we'll say you can't do that? It's impossible. I deal with really technical things. Um, well, go onto YouTube and look up complex problems described by experts in five levels, and it's brilliant. And you'll have you'll find um, quantum computing described by experts at um, post PhD, pre PhD, uh, teen um uh, All the way down to I think it's like age three, um and and they're great, I and mean, it's a great way that you start. You go, well, I'll, I'd like to know about that, and I can't know about that, so I'll start at the basic, and they go, and that shows someone who knows what they're talking about.
0: Yeah, and and in these times, uh, from an engagement point of view, um just being some of the business leaders who are listening into these conversations, what, what should the communication channels be? Should they be directed to just? direct management and they feed down messages or do you see a, a top-down approach when it comes to communication?
1: As a non-executive, obviously you've got, you have a very clear, clearly defined role and yeah. you don't want to be stepping up, so that's fine. But uh, there was, when I, um, when I worked at the Daily Telegraph, one of the things, and uh, as a very green-faced youngster, um, one of the things they did in between your interview rounds was um i think it was sort of second or third interview or the last one at the end of it they gave you a printout of all um all the senior managers and the board their faces and their names and at the next interview they suddenly pulled up a face and you didn't know anything so who's that (laughs) and the reasoning behind that was not so much a decision-maker, it was kind of a, uh, a bit of a learning tool. You don't know who you're going to be standing in the lift next to. And it, whilst it's good for the, the board may think, oh, yeah, but it's helpful that I hear them, you know, saying what's going wrong. Yeah, but it's not very nice on them if they realise afterwards who you are. That's mm-hmm. a real stressor. And actually, if they know who you are and they, and they see you as an open person and they think there is something you need to know and they come up to you, Fine, it doesn't happen, it happens rarely, but it does happen for me. But when I arrive on boards, I set communication channels very quickly. Um, I make it a, a, a priority for myself, if it's a Ned role, if it's a chair role, it's, a, it's across the wider board, and before we start, if we're bringing in members, then then I'll make sure that I've spoken to them a couple of times before the first board, get some, get some, uh, you know, a, a, get some good feedback, and just, get the idea of how we're gonna to work together and, and that they understand, it. make sure they have my numbers and make sure they can get in touch. But when I arrive um, to a board, the first thing I say to the chair is, are you doing uh, board champions? So are individual non-execs looking after specific areas that they're really interested in? Mm. Um, if not, can I do that? Because it's <laughs> really, really helpful and we'll go into one. Um, and if so, great, so who can I go to? Um, so then I go and do that, and then I I arrange time with uh, over the first six months. I arrange time with those directors and say, this, and we just until I'm until I'm aware, and I try and pop into the office more than you'd normally expect from. And until I'm, I really feel like I will get uh, directors just texting me, say, "Could I run something past you? I want to send this through. What do you think about this, or um, or where do we think is this is going?" And and that's just really helpful, you know. As, as, the whole critical friend approach is really important. And if you do that from Ned role, then what are you showing to everyone else? Open, that, you know, that's, that's, how, that's how we, we create a, a way that we can positively comment and criticize and be open about our ideas. And therefore it's how we grow. Mm. It's really, I mean, it's really basic stuff. It's stuff we know, but it's um, stuff we often forget about
0: yeah and, and uh, your sporting background is it's fabulous like i love it it's very cool what, what, you, what are your biggest learns from the crossover from sports to business
1: um well obviously there's uh, my my wife has pointed out there's a, a bit of irony that an ex swordsman has developed a shield um <laughs> so i hadn't really thought about that but it was uh yeah uh, day four of doing this I was starting to fall over, which for a guy who's already in a wheelchair is is also quite impressive. Um, But I was really feeling it. And I suddenly thought, I knew this was going to be, although fast, this was going to be many, many days. I was thinking at least two weeks. I didn't realize it was going to keep going, but that was fine. I thought, oh God, how am I going to do this? Um, I suddenly realized, oh, hang on. Um, Not only am am I an athlete, but actually I was expecting to do two more uh, major internationals before the, the Paris this year. I've now retired. I've had to retire. I can't stay on beyond September. I promised my young son and my wife that I would retire, so I'm very gutted to not be able to chase that. But um, having not done those competitions, I had all my nutritional supplements for competitions, ready and waiting on my hydration gels, all my um, essentially everything that I have ready to ensure that that doesn't happen in a competition over a multi-day event. Yeah. So, um, that's what we did. So we just, I just said to myself, what am I always telling people? What, what do I know? And I talk about this when, when doing mentoring and when doing lecturing on performance, um, we don't talk about hydration enough. Um, and, um, and this is a hydration tablet inside it because it doesn't, you don't have to be doing those things all the time, but I have a load. So, um, uh, the science in sport ones are the ones that most teams use and I still use those. Um, and but we don't talk about it enough, and actually the science around it is quite shocking. You have, uh, I've got the figures down somewhere, but if you have a two and a half to five percent rate of dehydration, you won't really notice it. You can lose up to 25 percent of your concentration. Hmm. So that's a really, really huge effect for a very small amount. We feel it in different ways, we in tiredness, we just feel a bit distracted. Uh, and then it's about understanding what your nutrition is. So if you're hitting the caffeine hard and then you're hitting um, the sugars, you're going to have ups and downs. Um, uh, I, I, it, again, you, so it's like, okay, what do I need right now? I know I've got fast paced am going, so I'm going to have to have some carbs, but try and keep it gentle and long and I need to get lots of vitamins in because there's lots of illness going around. So I need to make sure that I'm on top of that. I've got to have um, uh, just protein um, and I'll have some sugar when I, when I want it and that's fine, but I'll moderate that. Um, so there's, it's being kind to yourself whilst at the same time being really realistic about what your body needs. I need my brain to be totally on top of this. Um, we have built a company in days Between essentially um, two people, what one person working over well over full time, one person working well over full time on multiple projects, and um, and then some clinicians coming in, Uh, you know, it's all that thing. So you need. We've had to really keep things going in our heads, Um, and then have built up a team and being able to pass that on. Um, So concentrating nutrition and hydration is really really key, and. Um, when you focus on the failures and the mistakes, do it positively. Right. Um, in fencing, um, my main weapon was, was saber. Um, it was first to 15, and they would say, on guard, ready, fence. We would usually have finished the point. With this, as soon as they start saying fence, you can start. We would usually have finished the point before they finished saying the word fence. <laughs> So, And that can include multiple moves. If you don't believe me, Google wheelchair fencing sabre. Um, men's category A, and look at the Paralympics there. Amazing. Uh, the tip of my blade um, at my peak was, I think we measured it at 220 feet per second, so that's two, over 200 miles an hour. Wow. we do two or three moves in under half a second. Uh, some people say you can't react that fast actually it's just it's training, it's repetition you, you 6,000 repetitions something your, your muscles get to do it. Um, when that stops I've only got a couple of seconds until the next one goes if I'm annoyed because I didn't do what I meant to do or I got hit or, or whatever if I spend any time um, reacting negatively to that I've probably lost the next two, three, four hits and I say that from the experience of exactly that if i control that and go right okay what happened that happened or that happened i don't know okay i'm gonna have to reevaluate that then and i'll have to put that aside or i can try something again but i've got to change so what happened is it is it something i have to deal with now yes or no if yes okay fine that route if no out i'll deal with that later i'll deal with that emotion later i'll deal with that regret later and that well, again, I'm sure everyone what, uh, who does watch it will, will totally get that, and that enables us to do. it. doesn't mean I've ignored it. It's quite the opposite. It means I'm going, right, thank you. I want that information. And that comes back to our post-market surveillance. I don't think anyone else out there is doing any post-market surveillance and stuff that they're, they're rushing out for the COVID response. Um, it's really important to us.
0: Mm. Really to us.
1: I, wa- I want to know. I want to know what's wrong with it. I want to know why it doesn't quite work for you. Because I want to make it better, and I want to do that as soon as possible. So that, that's my drive, and I think, again, that's about being open with the whole team. That's about the whole team knowing that they can text at any time, day or night, um, and um, we're going to respond. The manufacturers, uh, were saying, they were laughing the other day because um, I didn't speak to them for one day. So that's the first day in, in the entire time since we've known you. We haven't actually spoken. Where everyone was just happy. It was just like, yeah, isn't that great? So and yet they also have said what's amazing is every time we've texted or tried to call you, you've called it back called us back as, you know, on that if I've been on another call. So that's really important. So it comes to that, that communication. So it's communication with others, communication with yourself. What's really important? Um, it's it's perhaps it's easier in this one. We've got a really important mission statement. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think you can see in that kind of
0: intensive project that sports psychology, that sports mindset, is is everything here. I think there's to be interesting how you balance it out though, at the pace you're operating, right? How are you how you manage to step back with such an importance of a mission ahead.
1: That is what has been keeping me was keeping me awake. Less so now. Now that we've right. got that.
0: Um. But it was the classic,
1: oh, have I done that? Oh, I need to remember to do that. But it's already, you're already exhausted, you're already in bed, and it's already, you know, everyone else is asleep, and, and it, it, it is difficult when you're, it's a bit more difficult to be a bit sneaky when, you're, when you've got a spinal injury. Um, but it was that case of, I, I just, I, a few days in, I just, it was that case of, there's no point in me saying, I'll remember that in the morning because I can't take that risk yeah so right, as soon as I remember okay I just have to, I have to deal with that now um that that was the, the major stress I uh continued to build the team using people I knew and others I don't know and as we started to get the external validation um that really helped because I pushed them uh I, I you know I I didn't just want validation for validation's sake. Great, you're doing something with COVID, yeah, thank you, but what do you think of this? So my mum, uh, bless her, struggled with, with some of it. She's, she's um, just turned 80 and, and obviously trying to get these over family WhatsApp groups and what's going on. She's saying, well, some of her friends don't understand it. They don't see what's a good idea, don't understand I said, great, tell me, what is it they're saying? What are yeah. they saying? Why don't they understand? What's the message? And actually you turns out, okay, fine. So that's what they're picking up from the message. Great, okay, that's fine. So that's really important to me, that even though they've got nothing to do with the clinical sphere, because in the clinical world, they're under stress. And when you're under stress, you're tired and things, you're not gonna see things, right? And on that hydration point for clinicians at the moment, and this is really important. So two to 5% dehydration, you lose, up, you lose around 25% of your concentration. PPE shortage. If you are wearing PPE because you're in a, uh, a contaminated area, you put it on just in an isolation suite, you go in. When you leave that ward, that room, you come out to the isolation suite, you doff it. It's called donning and doffing, like the old hats. Donning and doffing PPE. They didn't have enough, um, is, is what is being reported, and that's what they're saying. I have no reason not to believe them. Uh, a lot of friends in that situation. We don't have enough, Matt. Um, right, well, how are you managing? I'm not drinking. I can't. I can't drink. I can't have a break. If I drink, I'll need the loo. Um, right, but you're wearing loads of plastic. It's really hot and sweaty. Yeah, I know. But I've got to do this. And a, there was a final part for us with the whole journey, actually, which I didn't talk about. I, I said that um, Lydia is a end-of-life care specialist. And she and EJ, interesting, both came to me about three days before um, it was announced that they wanted to improve End of Life. Um, we'd had all these horrible, horrible, heartbreaking stories, all ages, all ages. And the next of kin couldn't be there. And sometimes the next of kin weren't able to even Skype in or whatever. Um, and I, everyone, everyone can understand that.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and we, were, I think we were all independently thinking this is, this is awful, absolutely awful. But this shield that this patient, it, again, it significantly reduces contamination and here's an option, end-of-life care, um, that we can enable people to be closer to physically touch maybe, you know, whatever, but they'll be in PPE, we're not replacing PPE, but it significantly reduces the risk. And and dying well is really important for the person who's dying, but for everyone else around them.
0: Mm.
1: Anyone who's been anywhere near someone who's died um, at that time, it's really important. Um,
0: So, yeah. Yeah. I think when I was speaking to my wife Ellie um, about this, and that uh, end care of life piece and the fact that there are only real two journeys at the moment in the hospital where you either come in and you come out or you don't come out and that's it. And uh, that piece really resonated with us. And that's that's why we, uh, The Grape Show and Eximius, you know, just thought this would be so good to fast track this interview. So we can just get it out there. And I've got a wonderful network people who could probably help, add some value, um, and contribute to the, the mission you're on. Um, and as long as you're staying hydrated, uh, I'll, I'll feel better. There's, there's, there's so many other points. Um, I'd love to catch up with you on uh, another time. I know, I know you've got... I was glad you for
1: too long in the beginning. I do apologise. Yeah. No, no, no,
0: it's great. It's great. It's, it's, been, it's, it's been wonderful. I think some of the points around... Um, anyone knows me around hydration, I am terrible. Uh, and I think the fact that you've now surrounded yourself with a team of people who can allow you to take a break, right? Who probably are on your case to say, just chill. I know my management team are wonderful in that way. Um, but look, I'm, I'm going to let you crack on. Thank you so much for your time Thank today. And um, If you can send me a link, I'd love to get a link out there to the GoFundMe page. Yeah, and okay. best of luck to all you and the team. <coughs> incredible, incredible mission. Um, it's, it's truly inspiring. but Uh, wonderful catching up, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon.
1: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And anyone who's made it this far, well done.
0: Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, see you soon. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye Bye.